Section 9 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 21 The Exhibition in Hyde Park, Part 2. The objections raised to the exhibition were not by any means confined to Colonel Sibthorpe or to his kind of argument. After some consideration, the royal commissioners had fixed upon Hyde Park as the best site for the great building, and many energetic and some influential voices were raised in fierce outcry against what was called the profanation of the park. It was argued that the public use of Hyde Park would be destroyed by the exhibition, that the park would be utterly spoiled, that its beauty could never be restored. A petition was presented by Lord Campbell to the House of Lords against the occupation of any part of Hyde Park with the exhibition building. Lord Broome supported the petition with his characteristic impetuosity and vehemence. He denounced the Attorney General with indignant eloquence, because that official had declined to file an application to the Court of Chancery for an injunction to stay any proceeding with the proposed building in the park. He denounced the House of Lords itself for what he considered its servile deference to royalty in the matter of the exhibition and its site. He declared that when he endeavored to raise the question there, it was received in dead silence, and he asserted that an effort to bring on a discussion in the House of Commons was received with a silence equally profound and servile. Such facts, he shouted, only show more painfully that absolute prostration of the understanding which takes place even in the minds of the bravest when the word prince is mentioned in this country. It is probably true enough that only the influence of a prince could have carried the scheme to success against the storms of opposition that began to blow at various periods and from different points. Undoubtedly, a vast number, probably the great majority of those who supported the enterprise in the beginning, did so simply because it was the project of a prince. Their numbers and their money enabled it to be carried on, and secured it the test of the world's examination and approval. In that sense, the very servility which accepts with delight whatever a prince proposes stood the exhibition in good stead. A courtier may plead that if English people in general had been more independent and less given to admiration of princes, the excellent project devised by Prince Albert would never have had a fair trial. Many times during its progress, the prince himself trembled for the success of his scheme. Many a time he must have felt inclined to renounce it, or at least to regret that he had ever taken it up. Absurd as the opposition to the scheme may now seem, it is certain that a great many sensible persons thought the moment singularly inopportune for the gathering of large crowds, and were satisfied that some inconvenient, if not dangerous, public demonstration must be provoked. The smouldering embers of Chartism, they said, were everywhere under society's feet. The crowds of foreigners whom Colonel Sibthorpe so dreaded would, calmer people said, naturally include large numbers of the Reds of all continental nations, who would be only too glad to coalesce with Chartism and discontent of all kinds for the purpose of disturbing the peace of London. The agitation caused by the papal aggression was still in full force and flame. By an odd coincidence, the first column of the exhibition building had been set up in Hyde Park almost at the same moment 
with the issue of the papal bull establishing a Roman Catholic hierarchy in England. These conditions looked gloomy for the project. The opponents of the exhibition, wrote the prince himself, work with might and main to throw all the old women here into a panic and to drive myself crazy. The strangers they give out are certain to commence a thorough revolution here, to murder Victoria and myself, and to proclaim the Red Republic in England. The plague is certain to ensue from the confluence of such vast multitudes, and to swallow up those whom the increased price of everything has not already swept away. For all this I am to be responsible, and against all this I have to make efficient provision. Most of the continental sovereigns looked coldly on the undertaking. The King of Prussia took such alarm at the thought of the Red Republicans whom the exhibition would draw together, that at first he positively prohibited his brother, then Prince of Prussia, now German Emperor, from attending the opening ceremonial, and though he afterwards withdrew the prohibition, he remained full of doubts and fears as to the personal safety of any royal or princely personage found in Hyde Park on the opening day. The Duke of Cambridge, being appealed to on the subject, acknowledged himself also full of apprehensions. The objections to the site continued to grow up to a certain time. The exhibition, Prince Albert wrote once to Baron Stockmar, his friend and adviser, is now attacked furiously by the Times, and the House of Commons is going to drive us out of the park. There is immense excitement on the subject. If we are driven out of the park, the work is done for. At one time, indeed, this result seemed highly probable, but public opinion gradually underwent a change, and the opposition to the site was defeated in the House of Commons by a large majority. Even, however, when the question of the site had been disposed of, there remained immense difficulties in the way. The press was not, on the whole, very favorable to the project. Punch, in particular, was hardly ever weary of making fun of it. Such a project, while yet only in embryo, undoubtedly furnished many points on which satire could fasten, and nothing short of complete success could save it from falling under a mountain of ridicule. No half-success would have rescued it. The ridicule was naturally provoked and aggravated to an unspeakable degree by the hyperbolical expectations and preposterous dithyrambics of some of the well-meaning but unwise and somewhat too obstreperously loyal supporters of the enterprise. To add to all this, as the time for the opening drew near, some of the foreign diplomatists in London began to sulk at the whole project. There were small points of objection made about the position and functions of foreign ambassadors at the opening ceremonial, and what the Queen and Prince meant for politeness was in one instance at least near being twisted into cause of offence. Up to the last moment it was not quite certain whether an absurd diplomatic quarrel might not have been part of the inaugural ceremonies of the opening day. The prince did not despair, however, and the project went on. There was a great deal of difficulty in selecting a plan for the building. Huge structures of brickwork, looking like enormous railway sheds, costly and hideous at once were proposed. It seemed almost certain that some one of them must be chosen. Happily, a sudden inspiration struck Mr., afterwards Sir Joseph Paxton, who was then in charge of the Duke of Devonshire's superb grounds at Chatsworth. 
Why not try glass and iron, he asked himself. Why not build a palace of glass and iron, large enough to cover all the intended contents of the exhibition, and which should be at once light, beautiful, and cheap? Mr. Paxton sketched out his plan hastily, and the idea was eagerly accepted by the royal commissioners. He made many improvements afterwards in his design, but the palace of glass and iron arose within the specified time on the green turf of Hyde Park. The idea, so happily hit upon, was serviceable in more ways than one to the success of the exhibition. It made the building itself as much an object of curiosity and wonder as the collections under its crystal roof. Of the hundreds of thousands who came to the exhibition, a goodly proportion were drawn to Hyde Park rather by a wish to see Paxton's palace of glass than all the wonders of industrial and plastic art that it enclosed. Indeed, Lord Palmerston, writing to Lord Normanby on the day after the opening of the exhibition, said, The building itself is far more worth seeing than anything in it, though many of its contents are worthy of admiration. Perhaps the glass building was like the exhibition project itself in one respect, it did not bring about the revolution which it was confidently expected to create. Glass and iron have not superseded brick and stone, any more than competitions of peaceful industry have banished arbitrament by war. But the building, like the exhibition itself, fulfilled admirably its more modest and immediate purpose, and was in that way a complete success. The structure of glass is indeed in every mind inseparably associated with the event and the year. The Queen herself has written a very interesting account of the success of the opening day. Her description is interesting as an expression of the feelings of the writer, the sense of profound relief and rapture, as well as for the sake of the picture it gives of the ceremonial itself. The enthusiasm of the wife over the complete success of the project on which her husband had set his heart and staked his name is simple and touching. If the importance of the undertaking and the amount of fame it was to bring to its author may seem a little overdone, not many readers will complain of the womanly and wifely feeling which could not be denied such fervent expression. The great event, wrote the Queen, has taken place, a complete and beautiful triumph a glorious and touching sight, one which I shall ever be proud of for my beloved Albert and my country. The park presented a wonderful spectacle, crowds streaming through it, carriages and troops passing, quite like the coronation day, and for me the same anxiety, no much greater anxiety on account of my beloved Albert. The day was bright and all bustle and excitement. The Green Park and Hyde Park were one densely crowded mass of human beings, in the highest good humour and most enthusiastic. I never saw Hyde Park look as it did, as far as the eye could reach. A little rain fell just as we started, but before we came near the Crystal Palace, the sun shone and gleamed upon the gigantic edifice upon which the flags of all nations were floating. The glimpse of the transept through the iron gates, the waving palms, Flowers, statues, myriads of people filling the galleries and seats around, with the flourish of trumpets as we entered, gave us a sensation which I can never forget, and I felt much moved. The sight as we came to the middle was magical, so vast, so glorious, so touching, one felt as so many did whom I have since spoken to, filled with devotion. 
more so than by any service I have ever heard. The tremendous cheers, the joy expressed in every face, the immensity of the building, the mixture of palms, flowers, trees, statues, fountains, the organ, with two hundred instruments and six hundred voices which sounded like nothing, and my beloved husband, the author of this peace festival, which united the industry of all nations of the earth, all this was moving indeed, and it was and is a day to live forever. God bless my dearest Albert. God bless my dearest country, which has shown itself so great today. One felt so grateful to the great God who seemed to pervade all and to bless all. The success of the opening day was indeed undoubted. There were nearly 30,000 people gathered together within the building, and nearly three-quarters of a million of persons lined the way between the exhibition and Buckingham Palace, and yet no accident whatever occurred, nor had the police any trouble imposed on them by the conduct of anybody in the crowd. It was impossible, wrote Lord Palmerston, for the invited guests of a lady's drawing-room to have conducted themselves with more perfect propriety than did this sea of human beings. It is needless to say that there were no hostile demonstrations by Red Republicans or malignant Chartists or infuriated Irish Catholics. The one thing which especially struck foreign observers, and to which many eloquent pens and tongues bore witness, was the orderly conduct of the people. Nor did the subsequent history of the exhibition in any way belie the promise of its opening day. It continued to attract delighted crowds to the last and more than once held within its precincts, at one moment, nearly a hundred thousand persons, a concourse large enough to have made the population of a respectable continental capital. In another way, the exhibition proved even more successful than was anticipated. There had been some difficulty in raising money in the first instance, and it was thought something of a patriotic risk when a few spirited citizens combined to secure the accomplishment of the undertaking by means of a guarantee fund. But the guarantee fund became, in the end, merely one of the forms and ceremonials of the exhibition, for the undertaking not only covered its expenses, but left a huge sum of money in the hands of the royal commissioners. The exhibition was closed by Prince Albert on October 15th. That, at least, may be described as the closing day, for it was then that the awards of prizes were made in presence of the prince and a large concourse of people. The exhibition itself had actually been closed to the general public on the 11th of the month. It has been imitated again and again. It was followed by an exhibition in Dublin, an exhibition of the paintings and sculptures of all nations in Manchester, three great exhibitions in Paris, the International Exhibition in Kensington in 1862, the Enterprise too of Prince Albert, although not destined to have his presence at its opening, an exhibition at Vienna, one in Philadelphia, and various others. Where all nations seem to have agreed to pay Prince Albert's enterprise the compliment of imitation, it seems superfluous to say that it was a success. Time has so toned down our expectations in regard to these enterprises that no occasion now arises for the feeling of disappointment which was long associated in the minds of one sanguine persons with the Crystal Palace of Hyde Park. We look on such exhibitions now as useful agencies in the work of industrial development, and in promoting the intercourse of peoples, and thus cooperating with various other influences in the general business of civilization. 
but the impressions produced by the Hyde Park exhibition were unique. It was the first thing of the kind. The gathering of peoples it brought together was as new, odd, and interesting as the glass building in which the industry of the world was displayed. For the first time in their lives, Londoners saw the ordinary aspect of London distinctly modified and changed by the incursion of foreigners who came to take part in or to look at our exhibition. London seemed to be playing at holiday, in a strange carnival sort of way, during the time the exhibition was open. The Hyde Park Enterprise bequeathed nothing very tangible or distinct to the world, except indeed the palace, which built out of its fabric, not its ruins, so gracefully ornaments one of the soft hills of Sydenham. But the memory of the exhibition itself is very distinct with all who saw it. None of its followers was exactly like it, or could take its place in the recollection of those who were its contemporaries. In a year made memorable by many political events of the greatest importance, of disturbed and tempestuous politics abroad, and at home, of the deaths of many illustrious men, and the failure of many splendid hopes, the exhibition in Hyde Park still holds its place in memory, not for what it brought or accomplished, but simply for itself, its surroundings, and its house of glass. End of section 9